start. Be Real is brought to you by Converse College Low Residency MFA. Their two-year program features biannual residencies that nurture writers of fiction, poetry, nonfiction, and young adults, guiding them from first draft to publication. Converse has launched emerging writers like memoirist Sunel Barnes, novelist Sonia Condit, and award-winning poet Lisa Hayes Jackson. Visit www.converse.edu slash MFA for more information. Converse College Low Residency MFA. Your next book lives here. You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life Be real! Welcome one and all to a genre-hopping movie reviewing and reappraising podcast. This is Be Real on the Playlist Podcast Network. My name is Chance Solon Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard, and my throat feels terrible. Why is that? I think I picked up a bit of a big of a throat thing. I've been traveling a lot, been on a lot of planes, been around a lot of strangers touching me. Well, it's a good thing you don't have to talk for the next hour and a half. I was thinking that right before we started. And I'm scared of escape rooms, so this should be a really fun next 90 minutes. This show, as we said, is on the Playlist Podcast Network, and we'd love you to uh, to like and subscribe and uh, listen to all the fine shows uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Buddy, what are we here to talk about today? It is 2019. Yeah, it's our first episode of 2019. And uh, as such, if you're not talking about movies that came out in 2018, you're talking about weird, bad January and February movies, aren't you? Yeah, when we were trying to come up with our first January podcast, I clicked on old IMDb to see what was uh, coming out this January 4th. And uh-huh. <laughs> the pickings were pretty slim, but I did notice that the film Escape Room was coming out. And I was like, well, that's a pretty interesting genre that I think we could probably do something with, you know, and we sort of landed on this single room, get out of the room. Yeah, I mean, that's the simplest way to say it, kind of movie genre that includes Panic Room and Rear Window. Yeah, you're watched, you're being watched in the room, you're watching people from your room. It's like thrillers set in a very Yeah, they all have like location. a camera dynamic too, where like one person's watching someone else, beknownst or unbeknownst to them. And it's fun when the roles are reversed too, we'll talk about Absolutely. How, how that happens. Um, but yeah, we're going to start with Escape Room, which uh, I the whole time I went, I, so I took myself to this movie today, Sunday. Uh, me and like six other people. Sam, um, I saw it this morning. Not a huge. I think it made a little bit of scratch this weekend. You know, it's a PG thirteen. Not at the eleven thirty showing at the Regal <laughs> Union Square. <laughs> yeah, I had a similar experience. Maybe the teens were at this la- out in force last night, but yeah, not this morning. Um, oh, but I kept thinking how funny it would be because this is the first two thousand nineteen movie that I've seen. If I was like. That's it for me this year. I'm not seeing another movie in 2019. You just came onto um, the podcast to tell me that you quit like watching movies. Maybe I'll watch all old movies, but then like okay. my year end list is just going to be like Escape Room at number one, and then not applicable for the other. That's right, because you 10. only in 2019 you will only see Escape Room. 
I'm going to try to pitch like it's 20 not a wholly unenjoyable <laughs> way to go into 2019. Sure. You could probably I'll probably be able to pull out an example of a way you could have done worse if you only saw one movie <laughs> in the next 12 months. Yeah, I mean, there's some pretty bad shit coming out. Um, so, yeah, obviously, we're going to talk about uh, what's considered to be a quite classic film and then uh, a film by a quite good director and David Fincher in Panic Room. But let's start with let's start with this silly little bit of fun and talk about how it leads us into our category. You want to control your life, but life isn't a science experiment. You can't contain your world forever. Try doing one thing that scares you over break, okay? Yeah. This serves as an entry voucher. For Minos escape rooms. Be the, the first, first to escape our most immersive room yet. And win a million dollars. So, uh, when does the game start? I think this is the escape room. We should look for clues. What are we looking for here? Anything that looks like a puzzle or a code. It looks like an oven dial. That looks real. It's kind of warming up in here. Uh, excuse me, we'd like our hit now, please. Well, that's creepy as hell. Do people know what an escape room is? Have you ever done one? I've been invited to escape rooms and always thoroughly declined. Uh, feel like that is the way to go. <laughs> I just don't see. So for those who you, of you who don't know, I feel like it's like an urban thing. And through some cursory Googling, it claims to have started in at this one place in New York City. Um, but essentially you take like a group of your family members or friends or coworkers. And as like a team building exercise, you are locked in this room. And the only way to like unearth the key is to buy is by solving a series of puzzles right so hollywood has taken this somewhat like niche craze of corporate like team building and turned it into this thriller which puts which really also can i interrupt and please. say it was like much hotter in like 2015 than it is now <laughs> Yeah, this so is definitely like a 2015 movie that like got stuck in turnaround or something, and then exactly. came out yeah, two like, years later. Then people were like, "Huh, the Froyo movie." <laughs> the Froyo movie. The Froyo movie. That was. I would have loved it if there was a Froyo room in this movie. So basically, you have these. What is it? Seven disparate characters. Uh, I think it's six. Six disparate characters. You have Amanda who's a an Iraq war veteran. You have mm-hmm. Zoe, who's just seems to be some sort of abused college freshman who like can't seem to relate to her uh, wet campus kind of uh, <laughs> college that she's attended. It's true. You have truck driver Mike, who admits pretty quickly that like could really use some money. Mm-hmm. You have... Uh, Ben, played by Logan Miller, who's the, I argued, hate criminal from Love, Simon, uh, as like a down and out uh, grocery store employee who like has sort of like a a sad but otherwise inoffensive alcohol problem. That's right. And then you have uh, Danny, who's like this guy who's obsessed with the art of the escape room, which he's done thousands of or something 
And then you have Jason, who is, as the movie describes him, sort of an American psycho kind of like guy who's really good at getting on the phone and selling you something you don't need by using like American cliches. Yep. And so all these people receive this box puzzle thing that after you like slam it against the wall hard enough, this uh, sort of business card pops out that says, hey, you want to win $10,000? Come to this escape the room place. And, you know, you can win if you get out first or at all or something. And all these people, many of whom, like, don't really need $10,000, all decide to come. Like, that, that was my sort of big question off the bat. Is like, why are these people there? Because clearly... Amanda, the Iraq vet, is pretty PTSD dealing, and she's also claustrophobic. Mm -hmm. So why would you ever agree to do an escape room? It's curious, because we know for Jason, Zoe, and Ben that their, their invitations are personalized to sort of like speak to either their their weaknesses or what they need in their life, which is like, get out there, don't turn down a challenge, or like, this is your escape from the grocery store shelf-stocking life. Um, What's Jason's, though? Like, why does he go? He's like a pretty successful... Uh, his, ego. his ego. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm pretty sure it said, like, for the man who thinks outside the box. And then so they get in there and there are, what, I think we counted them out, like, eight different sort of escape rooms and they're a lot like normal escape rooms in one sense because they're full of like locks and puzzles and every time anyone looks around there's like oh it's a padlock with seven things on it we better find seven numbers or a word that fits seven things uh they are unlike normal escape rooms because each one is trying to kill you with uh you know by burning or drowning or toxins that's the thrilling element. So it's like will will these people survive this sort of craze from 3 years ago? <laughs> So this movie's really silly. Uh, oh, it's hysterical. Especially when people start, like, talking to each other. Like, it can be real funny. Um, there is a... It does this thing where it will, like... It'll tee up lines, like, pretty big lines, but then the dialogue's just not there. Right. Like, Jay Ellis, who plays Lawrence on Insecure, um, there's a part where they go into the freezing room, which is probably my favorite of the rooms, the sort of like outdoor, like ice fishing trap room. Not really um, a room if we're being fair. Right. <laughs> More of a massive sort of like CG environment. Um, but you know, you can drown. Uh, but yeah, they'll, it'll do things like he'll, he'll sort of hold court over the group and say, have you ever heard what happens when you get hypothermia? And everyone's like, eyes widen. What is it, Jay? He's like, you get confused! <laughs> like, stuff like that where, you know, the actors are going for it, but who, boy, is the script like? It's not no. there to catch them. It, nope. lets them. it lets them drown in the water under the ice, That's so right. to speak. Yep. But I do think there's an, there are interesting conceits here, and there are interesting mm -hmm. set pieces here. The camp and ambition of which I don't think I've seen since like the original Poseidon adventure or something, <laughs> you know, oh, like wow, all right. you have Say that more. bar pool hall thing that's like upside down. I mean, that's the obvious Poseidon reference, right? But I really liked the, and the hallucination hatch, 
I thought that was pretty cool because you go into it and it's just like, oh, trippy. But then they like they take the the drug from Twenty One Jump Street or something, and their eyebrows uh-huh. start attacking each other. Yep. Even the even the opening scene I thought was cool in that they use sort of this bland corporate sort of layout for this lobby and turned them into interesting ways to create an oven. These yeah. sort of convection spaces. The set design is both sort of like necessarily lame because escape rooms like aren't that cool and they are very f- like f- you know, false, like the Victorian trash compactor room or the room that is just like a screensaver mountain on top of real ice. Um, but it somehow does work. Like we, we were joking in the notes, like the, the budget for this movie is $9 million and I can't imagine the actors, uh, you know, demanded much of that. I think the, the sets um, probably took up most of that and to decent effect, I would agree. Yeah, there's certainly not that many recognizable people on screen. No. And I really think the movie, well, we'll talk about the ending of this movie at some point. But I think the movie really swings and misses when it doesn't have a famous actor as like the game master, Ed Harris (laughs) at the end of Snowpiercer or whatever. I think that the games are fine. And entertaining. This reminded me of a movie that, like, I would have watched at sort of like a second tier friend's sleepover. Oh, definitely. Uh, around age 13. I mean, it's quintessential like, PG 13 entertainment. Yeah. yeah. And it's so interesting to watch this kind of movie because it not only feels dated in its, like, a sort of interrogation of pop culture phenomenons, it's also, like, kind of dated in, like, it's like in that f- like final, what is the, what's the one? Um, final, destination. Fi- final destination, which is such camp. And like, it's like, how, how is this person going to die? I'm going to meet six people and five of them are going to die. Like, how's it going to happen? And that's what this movie basically is. Yeah. There's not that deeper level of um, like g- gamification is sort of like the theme, obviously, but it's really more just like the setting. This is not, you couldn't help them in the puzzles by being observant, I don't think. You're just watching people solve puzzles. And well, it's sort, no of sort of like, like the audience equivalent of Blue's Clues or something. You know, like there's <laughs> yeah, this scene yeah. where they're in this cabin and one of the guys reads this embroidery that says, um, you'll go down in history. And then they're like, we need a name that has seven letters in it. And it's like, I, I was with my girlfriend in the theater and I leaned over to Lucy and I was like, that's Rudolph, don't you know? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And it's like stuff like that. Like you're, you know, shouting back at Steve, who's like, do you see where the blue left his footprint? <laughs> is it over here? And that's, I mean, that's yeah. what it is. This is some very adult stuff we're talking about. It's not. It is PG-13 stuff that like you and I probably would have like thought was way better than it is when we were 13. Right. It's true. Because we would have um, needed parental guidance before then. You... I think you single out the one, but like most of the time when it's just like, look at the way the puzzles are arranged. You're like, are the are the pool balls in the right shape? Like only the characters can figure that out. It's upside it's down because like the room's upside down. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't also doesn't have that deeper layer that you want it to have where it's like, it would make sense if the people turned against each other more, if this could mimic kind of a John Carpenter's The Thing. Sure. Um, 
that would be a deeper read. Uh, but, but that does no, kind of just... happen by the time they like figure out what the big like conceit is. Sort of, but the movie doesn't make good on it, I don't think. No, I'm not going to argue that. <laughs> but it definitely tries to do that. I think that the movie underplays. So I think we can spoil this not very good action movie pretty quickly. Yeah, let's like skip thing, ahead a few minutes if you want to go out and see uh, Escape Room next week. But the thing that's tying these individuals together is that they've all lived through trauma and that they were the only survivors thereof. So yeah. each of the rooms they're living through like directly references some theme or motif from the experience they had. So like the waiting room that's on fire is supposed to synthesize like an IED going off for Amanda in Iraq. I thought the interesting, the most interesting one that was not played up enough was the upside down dive bar one. It was supposed to represent how this girl Zoe came to after this plane crash and she was upside down and she was so paralyzed with grief that she like didn't move for a couple days. Oh yeah. And like, so her world turned upside down. So how does this work as an enclosed space thriller? Did well, it make it's not you feel really claustrophobic? An enclosed space. It's like a movie. It's like you go from set to set, but they're not mm. really, I mean, they're trapped within their scenes, but it's not really, it has that sort of convenient out of being like, oh, you don't like the fire room anymore? Let's take you to the ice room. <laughs> you know, and in that way, it's sort of like yeah. a, it's almost like a Willy Wonka kind of movie more right. than it is like, any of the other movies we're going to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I suppose Come more, yeah, me. more so, more so than setting the thing it has in common is that like they're being watched, they're being managed. And then can you flip the script on the people who are sort of like managing your experience? Can you use bullshit science to foil whoever the game master is? That's right. That's right. Uh, and while we're on a spoiling note, can we talk? Can we talk about the game master? Well, let's talk about the ending of this movie because I think that this movie, up until the end of it, had a lot of charm to it. In that, like, here's a lot of disparate sort of television actors, like interacting in the most bizarre ways with these strange set pieces, uh-huh. and it seemed like <laughs> everyone was really involved. And, like, kind of having, like, I mean, not having a good time, but definitely committing to, like, what is probably a fun project to be involved with. Yeah, I was was thinking, just to interrupt you real quick, as, like, they're in the ice thing and, like, Lawrence from Insecure is being like, ooh, I'm cold. I was like, yeah, you probably got a couple hundred thousand dollars. And they were like, go back to theater camp and pretend to be cold. And that... That's right, your, this whole thing is just like it is a theater camp for people. It's like this is the cold room. Where it's so cold. <laughs> oh, there's fire coming from the ceiling. <laughs> yeah, this um, is the scene yeah. where you find something and it it takes you back to a moment of terror. <laughs> and yeah, line after line is falling flat. But I'm with you. It did yeah, have a certain very charm Meisner. about it. Um. But the end. But the end of it, the movie like shifts into this like weird dystopian kind of like the rich control everything. And this is just like a running man kind of movie where like the rich pay to watch the poor suffer kind of thing. And it wasn't to teach them anything. I was sort of disappointed that it wasn't more like the game or something. Right. Where these horrible people 
like had paid like maybe her professor like had paid for her to do this, but like he was like a fucked up dude. And it was like, yeah, I did learn to be sort of on my own and like speak up for myself, but like, fuck you, dude. Yeah. It's kind of weird in a movie that is like telegraphing a twist from 90 minutes away. They're not really a twist. And then it's, it features this, this like sort of Eastern European stand in, in like a mission impossible movie. Yeah. It's like the second option. If that guy who goes like the, the chimera virus, like wasn't available. (laughs) And it's like, why is, I kind of cackled when the, the game master says that thing to the person, I guess I won't spoil who the quote unquote last person is. It's Darth Maul. But that person is like, do I get, so do I get to live? And the game master says, they don't give the trophy to the horse at the Kentucky Derby and then tries to kill the survivor. Now that to me is an example of like, you know, you got a couple young screenwriters sitting around a room and they're like, it'd be pretty cool if this guy said something about the Kentucky Derby and then like, because the horses don't get trophies, do they? But that's not how... They don't, they don't kill the horse after it wins right, the Kentucky Derby. They don't put Derby. the horse down after the Kentucky Derby just because he has a big ego now or something. In fact, if we were to follow the analogy through it all, that horse races again for even more money in just a few weeks' time. <laughs> and I mean, if this movie makes enough money, uh, I think these two actors will probably reprise their roles as these uh, show ponies. Escape. <laughs> Escape Room 3 colon Belmont Stakes. Definitely. Raise raise the Belmont Stakes. Um, But there is this sort of strange, like, at the very end, there's this, like, hazy video image of, like, the real puppet master behind this, like, escape room conspiracy (laughs) that is more or less Darth Maul from uh, Solo, A Star Wars Story. A European actor to be named later. Right. I wonder yeah. which franchise they're going to, like, link it to. It's going to be, like, Carrie Elwes from Saw or something. There's some definitely PG-13 Saw resonances going on This here. could easily be a Cloverfield movie. Mm. If, like, they got out and there was, like, a big fucking dinosaur just, like, eating the city after the escape room. Easily sure. a Cloverfield <laughs> movie. As I, I will say, I mean, it's pretty easy to get down on a movie like this. We'll rate it in a second. But... When I was thinking about it in comparison to Cloverfield Paradox, it was like, yeah, this movie night might not be good, but it does make sense. It does. Have it certainly like is an, coherent. It has an internal logic. Um, and when you think about like how many big budget movies like don't really have internal logic, good for good for you, Escape Room. There is no ambiguity on Be Real. All movies can and will be classified by one of our four ratings. Good, good, bad, bad, good, bad, and bad, good. The first good or bad refers to sheer artistry. The second is pure entertainment. Good, good is easy to explain. It's a movie that engages your inner art critic and brings you some form of happiness. For both reasons, you want to watch that movie again. Think Shawshank Redemption or Jurassic Park. (laughs) Or more recently, Get Out and Lady Bird. That we know of yet. Good, good movies make Noah hyperbolically say, That was the best movie I've ever seen. 
Bad Bad is easy too. Movies that bring you neither stimulation nor joy. Basically, you just spent two hours wishing you could watch something else. Think of any musician turned actor who gave it a go in a Nicholas Sparks adaptation. I'll pass. Or many Nicholas Cage movie where he plays a wizard or a warrior. You are going to be a force for good and a very important sorcerer. Bad Bad movies make chance say, I hate so much that you made me watch that. Now, good, bad movies. Those we recognize as worthwhile in a cinematic sense, but don't necessarily enjoy. Think Schindler's List, Requiem for a Dream, or Awards Bait that hinges on a historical figure delivering an impassioned speech. I have given you my soul. Leave me my name! These kinds of movies make Noah say, But it was so boring. And then I remind him that at least Leo finally got his Oscar for crawling through all that mud. Conversely, bad good movies feed your thoughtless inner child. They're anything from flawed but charming Nancy Myers outings. I'm miraculously done being in love with you! To late career missteps like Al Pacino and Danny Collins. They're loud and silly, like Kurt Russell in Big Trouble in Little China, or Stargate. It's all in the reflexes. Bad good movies make me want to watch Tombstone, especially when Noah says... But didn't the Mighty Ducks just give you that warm holiday feeling? Got all that? Now buckle up, because you're about to hear two friends who watch movies for very different reasons talk about their taste like it's God's own truth. But ultimately, I enjoyed the 90 minutes. So I, if we're turning towards a rating, may I? Yes, you may. I think it is a bad good. I want to say the same. The only My only follow-up... For disagreement's sake, is like, rewatch value? You gonna watch this again? I think you might notice some more things about the set pieces that could be interesting if one were to go back. Mm-hmm. You know. But yeah, I mean, you'd probably also come up with the fact that, like, none of the characters are very well developed. And- sure. It might hit you in the head a little bit harder that, like, why would you test people who got statistically lucky with like weird puzzles why would why would statistical anomalies be good at puzzles it doesn't make any sense hey maybe it's a jurassic park movie do you think this is like escalated chaos theory well this is where jeff goldblum ian malcolm has like started his own theme park and it's about chaos <laughs> if this movie grosses enough Malcolm can be the game, or Jeff Goldblum is his real name, can be the uh, games master in Escape Room 2. I would love that. It's just, they realize... So you're saying, but you're saying bad, bad? (laughs) No, I... No, I am going to say bad, bad. You open the door for me, I'm going to walk through it. That's Um, fine. But I would love to see a puzzle in the next movie that's just, they realize they're on a giant hand and there's water droplets rolling either way. That'd be fun. They never go the same way the same time. No. Tiny imperfections. Yeah. See, now I'm doing a podcast with you and (laughs) I'm sitting here talking to myself. Who could have predicted that? Okay. So let's get into some heavier hitters here. Um, We're going to talk about 2002's Panic Room. That's strange. What? Is this room smaller than it should be? You're the first person to notice. No one from our office had the slightest idea. It's called a panic room. What? It's a safe room. Castle keep in medieval times. Four concrete walls, buried phone line not connected to the house's main line. 
They're their own ventilation system and a bank of surveillance monitors that covers nearly every corner of the house. And what's to keep someone from prying open the door? Steel. Very thick steel. My room. Definitely my room. So Panic Room 2002, David Fincher, um, after a seemingly pretty contentious divorce, Jodie Foster uh, and her daughter, played by Kristen Stewart, move into this enormous Upper West Side brownstone townhouse, which they call a brown house. What is it that they call it? When they're at the beginning with the real estate agent, he's like, it's a town (laughs) tower it's a a town brown now follow me into the forest. it's a town brown yeah it's some weird portmanteau that i can't really remember and like Uh i've never heard in any other new york real estate context yeah but they're in this huge like four or five story house and it's just the two of them and it's six or seven bedrooms and a gazillion bathrooms and a huge kitchen and the other major feature of the house is a panic room oh the panic room so apparently the previous tenant uh, was very paranoid and very wealthy and like feared even his own family. So we had this like feet thick steel lined panic room with little like cameras and televisions and an outside untapped line and provisions and uh, at least one fireproof blanket and a uh, grill lighter. Yep. And when he passed away, um, he seemed to have left uh, quite a few upset, shall we say, relatives searching for his multi-million dollar fortune. So these two sets of disparate people, one a mother and daughter, trying to move on with their lives post-cheating uh, affair by a rich pharmaceutical guy, uh, husband-slash-father, and the grandson of this crazy man who built this panic room, They just, they need to get into the same place at the same time. And that is that house because buried in the safe in the panic room is the fortune. Mm -hmm. And so of course this grandson is played by the uh, teen heartthrob who's now in like his late forties or whatever. uh, Jared Leto. Yeah. Jared Leto's like 71 now. He's like 71 now, but back in 2002, he was like in his early twenties and had these really upsetting cornrows. As soon as I saw that and I, cause I had forgotten that he had cornrows in this movie. I wondered if Fincher was like, you know, Jared, when you show up on set the first day, can you please come with like a really bad, like white trash haircut? And Jared like showed up in the room next to him and was like already done, Davey. <laughs> I wonder if he did it as sort of like, Something to just upset Forrest Whitaker, who plays oh, the man, the sort of stooge from the company that installed the panic room and safe initially, who sort of knows how the system works. Mm-hmm. And if that Motley crew weren't enough, they've also included country music star Dwight Yoakam as the demented Raul. The quick trigger finger Raul as the muscle. And I think this is almost like a direct sort of copy of the bad guys from the taking of Pelham 123, minus yeah. the most necessary part, which is the genius villain. The Robert Shaw character. The Robert Shaw character. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a decent point because this movie makes a lot of choices at the front 
that I like want to give it credit for and that make it what it is. But when you're in the final stretch and you're like, well, people consider this Lesser Fincher and it does feel like Lesser Fincher. And it kind of crept up on me like, why? This should be really good. But then you go back and think about some of those choices. The movie is very spare and it's aesthetic and sort of almost interestingly minimalist in the fact that the character choice it makes in the beginning is that they're they're miserable. And there's nothing about this house that's going to solve any of their problems or give them a new lease on life or give them hope or like say something about like a, an American existence. It's just kind of their like, you know, rich alimony like prison that they have for themselves. Yeah, um, everyone's pretty sad and pretty dependent on this like money to which they feel themselves entitled, but that they yes. haven't earned themselves or just the absence of money. Like with Forrest Whitaker, we learn pretty quickly that he's like far behind on his own, like alimony, child support, custody, battle money. And he needs what he believes to be what a couple hundred thousand dollars to do whatever. I mean, Dwight Yoakam's there to just kick some ass, I think, but, uh, right. I think critically, though, David Kep is kind of like tripping on himself a little bit to establish that because David Kep wrote the script, uh, that Forrest Whitaker character, Burnham, really early about like what he's going to do with this money and what his limits are with this job. And so he doesn't feel dangerous at all because he's not. He's not going to hurt anyone. And he only says it a hundred times. And that kind of. Uh, decreases the panic, shall we say. Well, that's the thing is the key mistake that the robbers make is that they have misjudged when Jodie Foster and uh, Kristen Stewart are going to move into the house by a couple of days. So they don't expect them to be there. So, of course, they're just like sleeping after their first sort of weird meal in the house. And these guys bust in, realize that these women are there, and then sort of figure out are we still gonna do this or are we not gonna do this and then really without their choice after Jodie Foster wakes up they like have to do it for some reason Mm -hmm. I don't know I think I would have like left the house pretty quickly so essentially what happens is the girls end up in the panic room and the guys are not in the panic room trying to get the girls out of the panic room because the thing they need is in the panic room. Because the thing they need is in the panic room, and they can't get in unless someone from the inside opens it up. So one of their gambits is to inject the air supply of the panic room with, you know, a little uh, propane or something. Right. Just to, I'm not sure what their end game is. And you can see all three actors slash characters being like, so uncomfortable with the rate at which they should proceed. Like Dwight mm. Yoakam just wants them to be dead. Forrest Whitaker doesn't, though he thought of this idea, like only wants to sort of scare them with the smell. And like Jared Leto's just like, I hope I get injured soon so I can have a reason to do some painkillers. Jared Leto is like quite the interesting like swing vote in the dynamics of the robbers. Like he's going way back and forth between like, we got to do it, man. And like, I don't know if we should do that, man. Yeah, he's a real Um, Ben Sass of the... uh, Ben Sass is not a swing vote. He's just full of shit. (laughs) Don't talk to me about Nebraska senators I hate. Um, So... 
But I think the things we're pointing to, there are a lot of interesting dynamics in this movie. It's interesting, like, between some of the supporting characters, as a genre experiment, the sort of power dynamics between the people being... The people in the panic room do actually weirdly have more power than the people on the outside. It's like you can't do anything unless you can get in. But once it flips later and some of the other characters are on the outside and could seemingly save themselves, they can't because the other people have something that's in. As a sort of like bottle, it's very smart as one of these enclosed space thrillers about like whatever room you're in at a given time it gives you a different set of um, priorities and a different pedestal to be on. I'm just not sure it coheres as a larger movie. I agree with you. And I think, because movies like this, if you have an enclosed space, you not only need that, but you need the ticking clock. You need like the floor slash roof falling off of the upside down dive bar. Yeah, and this movie does and weirdly slow down a lot. This movie slows down a lot because you have these moments of high tension that are like then weirdly bobbled. Like there's that interesting thing where I think you know pretty quickly, but sort of subtly that Kristen Stewart is diabetic. Like she has orange juice in this mini fridge near her bed and she has this watch that has this number on it that like isn't the time. But other than that, it's not really referenced that she's diabetic except when like the movie hits this weird lull and Kristen Stewart's like, by the way, Jodie Foster, don't you forget the script says I'm diabetic. <laughs> yeah. At some point, you're going to need to get me some sugar. So, Mom, the script says I'm diabetic. Right. Exactly. That's a, that's a, that's the voice that she does, too. Yeah. Um, but that just feels like such a contrived, you know, thing that the script just needs. So Jodie Foster does have to, like, briefly go out. And mm-hmm. the same thing happens when, like, the cops show up. And the same thing happens, too, when, like, the... Uh, the shall we say outside person who's made more or less caused this whole situation shows up because they don't seem to know what to do with those people. I will, however, argue that some of the stuff like the attempts they make to contact the outside world, whether it's like sort of Jerry rigging the phone line or the thing with the flashlight or even her like sort of fighting back against the propane tank. Those moments are pretty compelling when they're physical things. It's compelling, but when it relies on more like emotional or human stakes to carry some sort of big moment, I just, I don't feel like it, it really coheres. I think you're right. I think that, uh, Kep is doing his best, like writing and thinking when we're embracing the genre here. And we think if, if what we have is a room or a window, some of the most interesting weapons that we have are elemental they are fire air water light across these three movies that we're dealing with here um but then yeah i in other in other things that don't make it awesome i was wondering like if do we have a jodie foster problem or do we have like a what do people think jodie foster means in a movie problem because if you think about we've done flight plan on this show um She's got this run of, like, post-Silence of the Lamb movies where it's, like, her character thing is that something terrible has happened to her. But then, like, once you get to the end of that, of her martyrdom, it's like, okay, so then who was she? She was just somebody who something really bad happened to, and then she, but she toughed it out? Who was that person? It's difficult for me in 2019 to look at this character and believe that this divorce to this guy who seems pretty scummy 
is enough to like really just destroy her sense of self. Like it almost feels like anti-feminist to say like, this woman retreated to this sad, lonely, barren house where she spent her days weeping and drinking red wine until her daughter went to college, spending her husband's <laughs> alimony. And it's such well, like a weeping. We only get to see her do that for like six hours. We don't know what she would have done the next day had the criminals died. But there's about. something about that like bathtub scene, and there's something yeah. the way she just like humiliates herself in front of the cops that is just so like doesn't this woman have some agency like than other than helping the people around her? Like, I'm just speaking to your point here of like, what does she want? Like something, she has a scar. Sure. And I think Jodie Foster character, she's been pigeonholed as this, this person with a trauma or a scar, but where she succeeds is well, in silence of the lambs. She needs to figure out who fucking like kidnapped this girl. Yes. In this movie, she doesn't have that. Her only thing is survival, and that's so passive. And she's up against such, like, goons who are not sure they actually want to hurt her. Right. Except right. for Dwight Yoakam, because he's a sociopath. <laughs> or a he's psychopath. Pretty, he's pretty great in this movie. He is pretty great in it, too. Especially when, like, that bad thing happens to him. Yes. And Fincher gets... Fincher kind of comes alive... I mean, I don't know. How do we think he's doing here? I said in the notes here that, like, this is very post-Fight Club. Like, when you follow the propane through the vent, it's just, like, yeah, a sped-up version of, like, a thing you can't see with the human eye that's, like, whisking you through, like, a wormhole sort of feeling. It's very, like, Fight Club-y and not very, like, Zodiac-y, which is the next movie that he makes after a little hiatus. I'm glad that he gave up on sort of that, like, micro... Yes. whatever thing of like, and like just showing off that like, I can make my camera go through the railing with a computer, you know? <laughs> but I do think yeah. you get to see some of the birth and the genesis of that visual style where it's like, you know, this house was easily just like redecorated and became one of the frat houses, one of the, uh, the clubs from the social network. Mm-hmm. That's you know, true. it's like expensive and big, but like dark and sad. Yeah, I think this movie is long on the dark, the sad, the metallic. Like when Jodie Foster pulls up her gray metallic sheets, I was just like, that's just like sleeping in a bed made of David Fincher films. <laughs> I right. don't want to do that. Yeah. Um, Give me aluminum but- foil and whatever's in that box next to uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's head. Exactly. <laughs> he does get... I'm, he does get jazzed at the right times, though. The fine, I won't spoil it if you haven't seen it in a while, but the, I guess I, maybe I will. The, it's from uh, 2002. I think it's fine. Where Dwight Yoakam's leg is all fucked up and the husband's revolver rig has tipped over and everyone trying to use the sledgehammer the wrong way. Like, the final scramble is very well directed. Oh, certainly. Yeah, you definitely think that, like, someone you care about is about to get a sledgehammer through the skull. And Dwight Yoakam full force punches a child in the face. I don't know that I agree with you, though, that this feels... I mean, sure, it's like lesser Fincher, but I don't know that I'm as down on this movie as maybe you are. Yeah. Like, I think there is a certain... I mean, the house is just miraculously shot and it's sort of constructed in a... Like, there's so many fun things for them to do because there's not just the panic room... 
there's the fact that there's so many rooms with so many connecting doors and there's that elevator too. And Mm -hmm. like, you have to go to the basement to like really get anything. And that's like not really designed for like human occupancy. And then there's like the little nooks and crannies where you can shine a flashlight out and really like fucking bother one of your neighbors for a second or two. Like that. I think there's a, like this house is well designed and that feels like, you know, production. And that feels like the set. Um, I guess it's in the script too, but it feels like this movie was, was made. It wasn't just like shot. It feels made. I'm, I'm not super sure what you mean by that, but I like, I don't disagree. I don't think this is a bad movie. I've just, this is the second time I've watched it. And the second time I've been frustrated by like why it's not better than a B to a B plus. So I'm going to say bad, good, bad, good. I'm going to maybe say, yeah, I think it's also bad, good. You know, I think it like misses a few things and has a few things missing, like even in just when the script was written that like was never addressed in a way that made Forrest Whitaker or Jodie Foster like really the pro and antagonists that they needed to be. Yeah. In order for you to like understand their kind of bond of like, I just need to get through this thing because I need to. And I'm not going to hurt you. And if push comes to shove, I will help you. Because that's the thing. You know from the beginning that there's an alliance between them as sort of like parents. So you know they're not going to fuck each other over. But that totally lets the wind out of the sails of any tension this movie might have. Especially because we don't go into depth about like the needs of these characters. But as you know, we discussed in Escape Room, like... I think this is a pretty fun, fun house kind of movie that, you know, each set piece has its own sort of fun moment and makes this movie entertaining. So, bad good. This podcast is brought to you by California College of the Arts MFA in Writing Program. Getting an MFA at their art school setting in San Francisco means that you can write and paint, write and design, and write and make a film. You can also write and write. Look for their MFA faculty member Tom Barbash's novel, The Dakota Winters, out from Echo. And their alum, Adam Nemet, and podcast favorites, We Can Save Us All, out now from Unnamed Press. For more information, open an internet browser and type in www cca.edu slash writing MFA. So let's move on to our final title. The oldest title we have ever officially talked about. Is that right? On the show. Yeah, we've never done a movie from the 50s before. Huh. This is a pretty good one to start with, I think. It is a pretty good one to start with because, I mean, I think the fear we had doing old classic movies is that like, well, they're just good. So yes. what is there really to discuss? But after watching Rear Window, I think it might be uh, not as good as maybe like everyone just sort of assumes it is. There's definitely some things going on in Rear Window. So, of course, this is the 1954 Alfred Hitchcock classic. It's, classic. Absolute classic. I, yeah, if you were looking, I was looking up all the different lists of like, what are Alfred Hitchcock's best films? What do different websites say? Rear Window always in the top five. Um, usually behind Vertigo, usually behind Psycho, but top, top tier Alfred Hitchcock. Um, this is Jimmy Stewart. This is Grace Kelly. My question to you before we go further though, is 
I watched the Christopher Reeve one, though. So if we're going to be talking about the Jimmy Stewart one, <laughs> With I'm, I'm going to be sort of at a loss. The setup for this movie is that J.B. Jeffries, a journalistic photographer played by Jimmy Stewart, uh, is confined to a wheelchair for seven weeks because he, like, it doesn't say what his injury is, but maybe, like, a shattered femur No, they talk about pelvis. it. He, well, yeah, they don't talk about the injury, but he got hit by a car. He, like, ran into a, a track during, like, a NASCAR yeah. thing. I found myself wondering, like, physiologically, what would require a cast that long? <laughs> Missing leg. <laughs> it was kind of like Jimmy Stewart comes from an age of men where, like, you wear your trousers to your belly button, right? And so you should do the same with your cast. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, like this, whatever happened to his leg, which again, we know, but like whatever the specific broken bones were, it's serious. He's not going anywhere. So he has a, he is a nurse that comes over to his, uh, his village apartment, his Greenwich village apartment every day to, to like give him a massage because like this wheelchair is going to fuck up his back and shoulder and he changes into a different pair of PJs. And then he just sits around waiting for his next photography assignment watching the neighbors. Um, seeing if they kill each other. Seeing if they kill each other <laughs> or themselves. And and that's really the setup for Rear Window is who he sees out the back of his window. I want to say there's seven or eight different apartments of importance. Um, and again, it's kind of like, again, like a realistic fakeness. Like this is very clearly a set but it's a very smartly sort of designed set that you can right. get inside of, especially with that little escape hatch of New York City out that alleyway. Yeah, there's that alleyway that you could like occasionally see a car or a truck drive by and then like it'll zoom in on when like someone's like thinking about whether or not they should stay in the neighborhood and then ultimately leaving. Right, right. Um, it's almost like a brilliant stage play. Yes. And like, of course, Alfred Hitchcock like notoriously hated shooting outside. So yeah, he's looking out the windows and there's a beautiful ballet dancer and there's a newlywed couple and there is a lonely songwriter and there's an even lonelier uh, kind of old maid who they call Mrs. Lonely Hearts. And then there is Raymond Burr who has brutally murdered and dismembered his wife. Um, maybe. That, maybe. Sorry. Well, she sort of quietly disappears and then he begins acting strangely. Yes. And it seems as though their marriage has deteriorated somewhat quicker than one might like call uh you know friendly yes so let's get it and then one of the other things going on with jb jeffries is that uh he is dating grace kelly <laughs> who is a, a sort of a like a magazine editor and socialite like a like a power player in like Madison Avenue style slash publication i don't really know what she does but right but she has a taste for the macabre yes <laughs> And for much older men. This is the scene of the crime. A crime of passion, filmed in a way you have never seen before. And as no one else would dare attempt. But the screen's master of suspense, the producer-director who shocked the world with Psycho. This is the apartment of a man named Jeffries, a news photographer whose beat used to be the world. Right now, his world has shrunk down to the size of this window. He's been watching the people across the way. Nobody seems to pull their blinds during a hot spell like this. He knows a lot about them by now. 
too much, perhaps. So I have this in the notes. I wanted to, we can go on for a while about the things that are good about Rear Window because there's so much that is good about it. But I couldn't decide. So not only can you see all these people, basically they're all living in like this bathtub of like marital psychosis and like, or not psychosis, that's too strong, but like different stages of like, Marriage is falling apart to the point of murder. Marriage is beginning. People have invested too much in the dream of sort of Amer like monogamy and the American dream that will ensue. And then that's all kind of reflected back on J.B. Jeffries, who does not want to settle down with his like much younger, richer blooded girlfriend. And like the first 40 minutes of this movie are a lot of like very of the era, like dated would be accurate way to like talk about the conversations that Jimmy Stewart and Grace Kelly have. And I think it's there for a reason. I think it's inflected when we look around the courtyard so much, but it's also like, wow, there is a lot of talking about these people who could easily settle their relationship dynamics if they would just talk like human beings. Right. Otherwise they're going to have to move uptown and get a, a brown town with a panic room. <laughs> that is the only option. That's the option. This this movie, or these this genre is just a trajectory of sadness. Yes, it's you start in marital hell, you break up, you get your own huge house with a panic room. You are the only survivor of the trauma of breaking into the panic room, That's and right. then Eastern European rich people <laughs> hire you to go into an escape room to be murdered. This is the enclosed space thriller cinematic universe. Let's tie it all together. Right. I think the Darth Maul at the end of Escape Room is just Jimmy Stewart. They've just animated him and brought him back to life. So, yeah, what do you think about those, like, Grace Kelly, Jimmy Stewart conversations? Like, I get it. It's Rosalind Russell and Cary Grant just sort of, like, with a little less zip. Um, sure. I like when the – she doesn't take a lot of lip from the cop, though. Like, no. the faces that she makes when he's just, like – I once believed a woman about something and I'll never do that again. Well, that's She's like looking at him like, you know, I bet you in 2018 men are going to have a hell of a reckoning. That's a great scene, though, where they're all kind of like just sitting there aerating their brandy as they stare across at the other at the other apartment. Um, you, you can't. What if you have to come with me into the jungle? What, what will you wear? And it's like, why would she come with you into the jungle, Jimmy Stewart? Can't you guys, like, have a relationship where you freelance photograph and then return to New York? And also, he never, like, he never really expresses why he enjoys journalism or photography. It's just like, you wouldn't climb Mount Everest with me, babe, so we're never getting married. It's like, all right. what if, So what if she didn't? Do most people yeah, expect... Yeah, the photography aspect of it seems pretty incidental to his just, like thrill seeking. But I will say, while I think that is an important sort of theme of the movie, I think the movie is more interested, yes, in that, but also in, I mean, there's a line in there where she's, um, where the, the nurse, uh, Thelma Ritter is like, she's like, we're turning into a species of peeping Toms. Yes. We're just like watching each other. And that feels like a sort of prescience. And maybe like oh, that's yeah. where, you know, the Leonard Maltons and the, 
you know, people of that ilk are like, this is a classic because it predicted how people use Facebook and I don't have one of those. <laughs> well, yeah, this is this is the movie in film school that they teach you about voyeurism with. Um, right. And like what? I mean, I, without this, you don't have, you know, Brian De Palma just as like a person. <laughs> Yeah, it wouldn't exist. He was born the day this movie was released. That's not Yeah, true. he saw it and was just like, fucking love that. I'm going to make movies. Yeah, so even if the gender politics are of their time, I'll go even further. I think one of the things that, um, that to me feels really great about this movie is I, I don't like true crime, but... I, can, I will think all day about why people like true crime. And this kind of feels like that sort of movie where you don't, you, see, you keep craning your neck, craning, craning, craning to see the, as you said, the macabre, the, you know, that void of humanity where it's just like, I want to look in the devil's eyes and then step back. But then you don't realize how far you've craned your neck, how you look. And there's that moment where Stella's like, God, if you could see yourself, Jeff. And like that to right. me is sort of like our relationship to these like, yeah, we'll we'll make a mystery out of, um, you know, real tragedy that happened out of just watching our neighbors. We'll make a dark, titillating story out of anything. But we don't realize maybe until it's too late, like how we look to other people or if the story could say show up on our own doorstep. It also has that sort of nice meta, like, here's a person watching a movie. You're watching a movie of a person watching a movie. Yes. And there's he's sort of like Mystery Science 3000-ing, like, his own life until it sort of goes off the rails and he stops becoming, you know, more or less the narrator or the writer of it. But then he invents this sort of – his stories are only, like, of course they're right, but they're not totally right. No. You know, and I think that's what makes the movie sort of interesting is that he is an observer of the human condition and can tell when there's like a murderer afoot, but he doesn't exactly like his, his need for adventure, his, what would you wear in the jungle takes the best of him and sort of hyperbolizes like what is something more out of boredom than out of like, I'm going to kill her like for the money or like whatever it happens to be. Right. Yeah. I, I think that if you were to revise this movie at all, which seems a little, which seems silly or possibly sacrilegious, um, it would be like that the Doyle character group could raise the point of like, do you guys understand what circumstantial evidence is uh, to quote or just evidence to quote Mark Ruffalo from David Fincher's Zodiac? Careful, Dirty Harry. I mean, like you can't. You can't just like spin. None of this is police work. So the fact that they take right. him away at the end for the cute, the classic but cute ending is like, okay, all right, fine. Well, his only real crime by the end of it that they can prove is that he attacked Jimmy Stewart. Like that's what gets him arrested. Right. In, unless he do, has done that, he's really like not done enough that they can look into him and find out what happened to the wife. Well, except for the the thing where the cops like, hey, Sarge, he's singing like a canary up here. He says right arms in the East River. It's like, all right. <laughs> well, that's once he's in police custody. Right. But that's sort of the I mean, it sort of has that, you know, all the president's menness to it where it's like we know these people did these things. But like 
what's the morality and the ethics of how far these people go to prove it? What are the rear window ethics? If he does not send him that letter and if he does not drive him to lashing out in a violent and public way, you don't have a warrant and this guy goes off scot-free. It Mm. wasn't that he proved he did it. He just caused him to behave in another illegal way so to tie it together. Yeah. It's just like, it's his own like little scam. Yes. Which, and then that, the, the, the bow on the end makes it, you know, not the, not the possibly the darkest, smartest read on that thing. But like my, I have, I think that the last 20 minutes of this movie are some of the, is the most exciting 20 minutes of a thriller possibly ever. Like, well, it's gotta be because the first 45 are so goddamn boring. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if they're boring, um, but from the moment that Stella and Liza go to investigate what is in the garden, to Liza going into the apartment, to the flashbulb conclusion, um, it is incredible that a movie 70 years old is that exciting. Like, it, I love it so much. Absolutely, um, yeah. And a huge part, part of that credit goes to Raymond Burr, who it's hard to point exactly to the things he is doing in his performance or whether it's just Hitchcock positioning him in such an interesting way as the antagonist. But he is such a big man and his hair is dyed stark white here. Like we're before Perry Mason. Um, and he's just so incredibly imposing lugging those suitcases around. So when he shows up on the doorstep and is like, what do you want? And is slowly stepping forward through the flashbulbs. It's terrifying. Oh, absolutely. I mean, even just the way he sort of hulks over his wife in the opening and then her like, her absence is almost like he's like swallowed her with his body or something. (laughs) Like I think makes it like one of the more interesting dynamics of it. It's like, has she gone inside him? Like, where has she gone? Let me ask you this. How many times in his career do you think Jimmy Stewart has uttered the phrase, now wait just a minute? I think in every movie he's ever been in at least once. I, I heard him say that in this movie. Now wait just a minute there. Um, <laughs> and it was like... I love your impression of Jimmy Stewart. Thanks. It's one of my only true top flight ones. Um, but I was like... Do you, you are always asking people to hold on, aren't you, James? <laughs> I think he's got a really good habit, too, of an actor. And I mean, it's, of course, just the scripts he's gotten. But he'll, like, either refer to objects and be like, I'll get that for you. Or, like, when he's like, uh, I'll get the moon for you in uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Or sure. in this one, it's like, you know, look at that teapot over there. Would you get that for me? <laughs> Give me a scratch paper and some pencil. He's good at, like, asking people for, like, physical objects. Sure, that's it. <laughs> He's, or promising physical objects like two people two people as yeah. gifts. Yep, that's a good point. Uh, I think this movie's a good good. Um, I think that there again you you can poke holes. It's a little cute in a weird way, and it's a little like about marriage in a way that feels preposterously outdated in some other ways. But like again, as a thriller, as an enclosed space movie. As a voyeur movie where the thing is flipped at the end, like, it doesn't get better. So I'm going to go good, good. Yeah, I mean, I think it it's certainly, like, the drama of it that exists in the first half hour, 45 minutes, is certainly not as potent as it once was uh, and perpetuates some, like, laughably 
yeah. out of date gender roles. Um, but I think this it the movie does have surprisingly for a movie from the 1950s, uh, women with some real agency. Like when women are passionate about something, whether it be you know their occupation or solving who killed this woman that they don't even know, yeah, they like go after it, and then they come back and like even if it was something bad, they're like, wasn't that close? Yep, you know, wasn't that exciting? And like I think that that's where where Grace Kelly sort of shines is that she's having an adventure almost for Jimmy Stewart to watch. I think it begins as entertainment for him, like because she cares for him so much and knows how bored he is. But then by the end of it, I think it becomes more of like, look what I can do. Like I'm going to solve this thing. People becoming obsessed and revealing slowly that it's not about the object of the obsession, but rather about themselves is a timeless theme. And I just love it. And I think it, I think it truly is to me the blind spot of the true crime genre, which is like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of podcasts and documentaries of people being like, look at this thing. And like you being like, would you look in the mirror for just a second about like right. why you're so interested in this thing? I think it's fascinating. Yeah, I think it's a, a good good as well. And I think what sort of draws all three of these movies together is the idea of the timelessness of how weird people become when you put them in a confined space with like only menial tasks to do. Sure. You know, whether it's like solve a goofy puzzle or like when it's some like brain teaser thing, like what is the equation that like, okay, so I'm in this room and they can't get in here, but I need to get out to get insulin shots. Yeah. Like those sort of calculations and how weird people end up behaving when they like really need something in a specific like claustrophobic space. Yeah, I think that's why Rear Window is so successful and such a classic. Why I don't think Panic Room is as maybe as bad as people say. And why, you know, a fair amount of people, I think it made like a fair amount of money this weekend, Panic or um, Escape Room. I mean, it made like two or three million dollars just on like the early screenings on Thursday. So we'll have to see what the weekend brings in total. But people like a conceit like that. Yeah. Because they almost want to know like, well, what would I do if I were laid up for six weeks? What would I do if I was in like a big house, but it had a panic room? Like, what would I do if I went to an escape room with a bunch of my colleagues and, you know, they started fucking dying? Yeah. I will tell you that uh, as someone who works from home, we are ripe for like a gig economy rear window like remake of like someone who's just like copy editing and then starts to look out their window. Well, that's kind of like what the AJ Finn book, the woman in the window is about. I don't know about that. Is it good? No, it's like a big best-selling book. I haven't read it, but they're also, they're adapting it now. So Great. we shall see what it looks like and we shall return to this genre <laughs> and we shall, in which we will do cube and <laughs> saw saw all right folks so you can find our show on theplaylist.net or subscribe to the playlist podcast network wherever you get your shows we would love you to do that uh adjust your tracking just put out uh their top 10 of 2018 which was a, i listened to that that was fantastic that was really good um I really like our, our stable mates on this podcast network. So, uh, I like that they ruthlessly used the music from Beale street. 
Oh yeah, the, that's that great. Nicholas Bertel soundtrack so good. Even someone who yeah. didn't like Beale Street must admit that, right, Noah? I loved the music. It was just the rest of it I couldn't stand. Uh, that's for another episode. Uh, and then if you want to find old episodes of this show, berealpodcast.com is newly streamlined and redesigned. Uh, we would it's love beautiful. You. Isn't it amazing? Yeah, we would love you to check that out. And uh, Noah and I also wrote up our top tens of 2018. Um, I think this is the first audio show that will come out after us having done that. So check that out as well. Um, but, you know, otherwise, stay in the great wide open. Don't go into the oven room. Uh, leave your neighbors alone. Uh Go to some parks. <laughs> yeah. Just keep your head down. Get an apartment that is a reasonable size for your size family. Right. No escape rooms. Just go to get a get pizza. Go to the Olive Garden with your coworkers. Don't go to the escape room. <laughs> okay. Bye, buddy. See you later, pal. <laughs>